G'day and welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. My name's Jeremy Cownan. This is a podcast where I'll show you how the five drivers of real estate manifest in property price gains, allowing you to make better real estate decisions more confidently. And today's story is one that I couldn't have written the script better myself. See, it shows all our drivers at work, technology, infrastructure, population, government, and of course, credit. This is a story that is seeded in technological advancements and provokes such questions as, how do I become more productive, more profitable? How do I do more with less, less resources, fewer inputs? And how do I do this in a sustainable way? And how does a community accept and adopt new technology? How do you change the minds of customers who have been doing things a particular way for hundreds of years? And how do I convince them that my mechanical horse is better than the horse standing outside that they've given a name to and have a relationship with? See, this is the story of a broke blacksmith that changed farming forever and became a household name worldwide. This is, of course, the amazing story of John Deere, his plough and the mechanical horse. And here today to tell this amazing story is John Deere's corporate archivist and historian, Neil Dalstrom. Neil, welcome to Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. Thanks for having me. Now, Neil, you've got the envious job of being an archivist and historian at John Deere, which means you're surrounded by all sorts of uh, rich history, you know, volumes and volumes of this history. And it was Mark Twain who reputably said that history never repeats, but at times it rhymes. And I often use the phrase, same, same, but different, because history can never repeat itself exactly. You know, things have to change, technology advances, laws and society evolves and governments come and go. But I wanted to ask in your professional experience, you know, how do you feel about the concept of history showing us the future? It's a, a really intriguing question, and 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 actually, I, I what what I see a lot is is this phrase "past is prologue," and I look at it and say, yeah, that that's, I mean, you can't argue that. It's just because that's how time works. You you march forward, but I, I think there's there's of course lessons. Like our, our goal in studying history is to learn lessons. You you, mm-hmm. you want to figure something out. You want to be smarter than you were before you started asking questions. And I, yeah, I think it can, it can help us kind of sort through the, the future in terms of making some sense of it. Um, I don't think it provides a roadmap um, necessarily to anything that happens in the future. I think, I think if we dig deep enough, we can, we can start to look at personalities and we can look at bias. We can look at what we think are, are clear mistakes and hope that we don't repeat those. Um, but in terms of helping us, us kind of map out what the future is, I think that's a very tricky business. And, it, and, and you can't go, go into the future with blinders on. It is one of those things that, you know, human, like, all these things around us change, but human nature doesn't. Human nature doesn't. You, you go back to the pharaohs and you go back to the, the, the kings of England and you go back to to U.S. presidents. There, there's always there's always a seed of ambition. Sometimes there's childhood tragedy. There's loss. Um, there's all these these kind of commonalities. And I, I studied classical history, so I go back to Joseph Campbell um, and the hero journey and think about things that truly inspire us. 
and, and push us to, to be great. Um, I, I don't think those things change because they're all tied to, to human beings. And, you know, we, we evolve and change, but at the very kind of core of who we are, I would question that we change a lot um, in, in a lot of areas. And, and we're always trying to find examples, you know, good and bad in history to make us feel good about ourselves. I'd completely agree with that, that, that there's a lot of things that change, but humans haven't, you know, they haven't changed fundamentally have they the way in which we uh we act and and our biases and 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 motives etc it's uh it and which which dooms us to continue to repeat the the uh the issues of the past in a lot of ways yeah absolutely and and i'm i'm an eternal optimist i i believe the, mm. the glass is, is half full sometimes that's difficult because we see everything um that's wrong with the world we're all very hypersensitive to it and we see every incident of it but I, by and large, I, I, I believe the world is safer than it was 100 years ago. Mm. I feel like the world is better. I feel like people are better than they were 100 years ago. But I think it's harder to believe it. And there's mm. more reason for some people to convince us that none of those things are true. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And for me, I often get frustrated because you know people tend to see history through the eyes of today's or the lens of today's and not the lens of the time you know they see for example say an old telegraph pole and they just see the telegraph pole but they fail to appreciate the importance of that technology of the time the you know the, the telegraph was the internet of the day wasn't it? it you know produced massive productivity gains and business and employment opportunities and and in a lot of ways started a, a communications revolution yet when we look at the telegraph pole we just we fail to make those connections, don't we? Yeah, we, we often do. And, and I find myself sometimes talking about, you know, you, you, you talk about technology and you say, okay, well, well, you're using a, a, a mobile phone today. Um, so in order for you to actually understand that technology, I want to give you a hundred year history of the telephone. Well, the reality is to get through your day, you don't need a hundred year history of the telephone to understand how amazing a mobile phone is today. Mm. And, and I think oftentimes we, we try to push history in that way to say, well, you've got to understand everything up to, to that point. And sometimes I think that's really valuable and really true. Um, sometimes it's not. And, and oftentimes, like in my case, when you research and, and write, you often don't know till you get to the end whether or not it's valuable at all. Yeah. Yeah. I um I read recently somewhere, Neil, where someone referred to the humble tractor as the horsepower that changed the world. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the impact that the tractor had on modern society? I think it's a fair assessment. I, I think it's really the foundation for a lot of things to come. Um the 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 horse, um at the end of the day, there's, there's limitations. Um, you can, you know, you can hitch up teams of horses and you can pull implements, plows and, and, and grain binders and, and corn binders, but there's going to be limitations to that. Um, it's not really going to allow for, for large scale expansion for better or for worse. Um, and, and so tractors are really going to change a lot of things from basic, just increasing horsepower, getting, do, doing more work with, with less, with fewer inputs 
but then going from towing equipment to self-propelled equipment, thinking about um, combines and cotton harvesters and other types of equipment to come. I, I don't think any of those things happen unless the, the humble tractor uh, comes along first and, and not only changes how horsepower works and how you harness horsepower, but kind of intellectually how, how farmers especially think about work. It's, it's something Henry Ford talked about and what drove him crazy as, as a kid growing up on the farm is he, he said, you know, a, a farmer would um, carry a bucket up a ladder a hundred times um, instead of laying drain pipes somewhere. And the farmer's answer was always hire more people versus coming up with a, a solution. And, and he often attributed that to kind of the drudgery of the farm and tradition. And he, he certainly saw horsepower as a way to change that. The tractor itself, I mean, as you said, it created huge productivity gains. Um, that concept of producing more with less, um, uh, you know, is the manifestation or productivity is the manifestation of that. And for us, that's very much what this podcast is about. It's about how um, those productivity gains manifest into the land and the, the the tractor itself, I mean, created enormous productivity gains on the farm, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did. And, you know, you, you think about, um, so here in the United States, um, at in, in the early 1900s, uh, an average farm in the United States uh, was feeding two to three people. And 50 years later, you're feeding 45 people from that same farm. Um, th those are incredible gains and, and, and the tractor is really gonna facilitate a lot of that. So now your economy changes, um, there, you, you need fewer hands on the farm or uh, with the same amount of hands, you're expanding your operation. And now instead of only growing food for your family and your employees to consume, um, now you're going to town and, and you're selling surplus crops. Now you're, you're um, shipping food to other parts of the country. You're exporting to other markets. So it really changes the dynamics of, of the world economy over time. And that productivity growth, as you said, you know, from the tractor, it just spirals out, doesn't it, um, from a commercial point of view? Uh, not just the increase in food that's produced on the farm, but um, the way in which society and commerce then actually operates, the way in which towns spring up. And as you said, that food is moved and, and then the opportunities that creates in, in, in larger commercial centres. Yeah, absolutely. Um land that you couldn't farm before now you can farm because of the equipment that you can put to use um, now you're finding other applications for 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 your tractor you can use your tractor to pull a, a grader and pave roads um, you know now all of a sudden you need you need infrastructure because you need filling stations mm -hmm. uh, one of the limitations early on on, on from the transition from steam to gasoline is gasoline's hard to find um, you know, there, there aren't filling stations, um, around the corner where you can go, go fuel your tractor. Um, so you have this entire kind of infrastructure that has to be built up. A good comparison today is electric cars. Yeah. Um, you know, you can go buy an electric car, but if there isn't a charging station within 300 miles of your home, I don't feel very comfortable driving an electric car because I'm mm -hmm. not going to get very far. So mm -hmm. what's the infrastructure in these, these, um, 
kind of uh, new businesses that, that have to grow up around you in order to facilitate that. How did they create those filling stations? You know, that would have been hard from a transitional point of view, wouldn't it, from when the, when you're transitioning from the horse to the tractor, uh, that you need that infrastructure. I mean, how, how did that come about? Yeah, well, you know, fortunately for the, the tractor, a lot of this is driven by the automobile industry, which, which is growing exponentially at, at a faster pace than, than the farm tractor in the early 20th century. So that's very much driving a lot of that, and, and farmers are the recipient of that, fortunately. Um, and, and, and also you see, you know, farmer cooperatives and, and you see this, what we, what we often think this kind of idyllic view of, of the farm, which is neighbors helping neighbors, um, cooperating. That's a real thing. Um, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not myth. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe you're pooling resources and you're, you're fueling up and, and sharing that fuel. Maybe you're, you're, you're going in with your neighbor and buying a tractor for the first time and sharing all of those upfront expenses, because in the early stages, it's still very experimental. You got to find mechanics to repair your tractor. Mm-hmm. You need a dealership that can support it. Um, so all of those different pieces, it, it, it certainly took a lot and, and it helps explain why the tractor isn't an overnight sensation. It doesn't go from a thousand to four million on on farms. It's it's a much slower kind of rate of growth than that. I often from a historical perspective use my grandmother as um uh, as an example of how she lived her life and and she was always very skeptical of new fangdangled advancements you know for example she wouldn't have a microwave because you know to her it was just voodooism to put you know food in a in a box and a light go on and it go around and then go ding and all of a sudden it was hot you know she just she couldn't come at that concept that it's that it that it couldn't be bad for you you know etc you know how was the tractor received by the general public it, it took some time for the general public to, to really welcome it. It's, you know, you think of your, your bell curve and you have the early adopters because they see, because this is about increasing the profit on, in, in your operation. And, you know, it's, it's, we always have to think about that in terms, farmers aren't farming purely out of the joy of farming. This is their livelihood and their business. So it's got to make financial sense for them to make the investment in, in a machine. Um, so you kind of have that piece of it, but the horse had been on, on, on the farm forever. It's mm. it, your horses had names. They were part of the family. Um, your kids fed the horses and cared for the horses. Um, you bred them, you know, so that, that you could kind of replenish your stock. So they just, they had this, this kind of cherished position uh, in, in the farm operation. And so you got to kind of overcome that in a lot of ways. Um, the tractor is very much positioned as new tech, uh, as a way to keep young people on the farm, things that would sound familiar to us today. Mm. But, you know, if, if, if you're a a teenager and you're wowed by the, the automobile and this amazing new technology, like the radio, um, or, or electricity, you're really going to be attracted to the city. So um, one way that that manufacturers promoted the tractor was this is new tech for your for your teenagers. 
they're really going to want to drive this and operate it because it's super cool. And that's a way to keep them on the farm. Um, so there are lots of different, different tactics. Um, another one was just around, around scale and costs, um, comparing, uh, a lot of ads would say, well, you know, your horse can't work 24 hours a day. Um, you know, you, you've got to feed your horse. The input costs are, are a lot more for, for, for horses than they are for tractors. Um, yeah. tractors are going to operate whether it's hundred degrees or, or 20 degrees below zero. Um, horses are, are going to need to rest and tractors don't have to do that. So they used all sorts of tactics to kind of put it in front of people. Which is kind of a bit ironic, isn't it? Cause a tractor can work 24 seven, but can the farmer sit on it for 24 <laughs> seven, you know, a, a horse needs inputs, etc. I mean, a, uh, a tractor still needs, you know, gasoline to, uh, to crank it over. And I mean, there's sort of the, the yin and yang for that, uh, for that sort of discussion, isn't there? Uh, absolutely. They, they conveniently left some of the details out and, and, and there was um, a, a magazine that, that kind of, talked about i forget exactly the way they phrased it but it was kind of like this was the glorious uh kind of mess of the early tractor industry which is you had the early adopters who were starting to figure out what worked and what didn't work yeah um and so this is in like the the 19 teens where they're mm -hmm. starting to understand things like oh well that's an incredibly small and lightweight tractor but it also tipped over um, yeah. or couldn't pull a plow under load or didn't do all the things that the manufacturer said that, that it would do. So now you start to see legislation and regulations kind of catch up with the tractor um, so that now when you printed advertising, it actually had to, to do the things that you said it was going to do. And, and that took about a decade to work some of that out. Um, it's it's like, um, like a lot of emerging industries. I think of of um, the tech industry, kind of the, the dot-coms of the 1990s of it's a period that breeds um, entrepreneurs, um, fraud, people who are out there raising money because they've designed a tractor and they're, they need a million dollars. Well, you can raise a million dollars because you're going to find investors um, who are guaranteed a return problem is you never built a tractor and you don't have plans on building one so there was plenty yeah. of that in this early industry as well yeah so it was it was it was it was tough um you couldn't send an email to your to your neighbor to to warn them so by the time the the salesman left town and it hit everyone in town uh maybe you were all victimized there was a lot of that that had to be kind of worked through as well before there was there was widespread adoption it's interesting too how you know you said about the, the the legislative lag that occurred. I mean, it's very much what's I guess happening right now with the with the social media you know platforms. You know, concerns about TikTok and Facebook and and uh, Insta, etc. I mean, it's it's the same same, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar. And you know, we we started by talking about about how we we can use the past to kind of think about the future. And that, that's a way to do it, to say, okay, here's some of the steps that were taken. Maybe we, we mirror some of those steps and there may be additional steps, but at least we have a starting point. And I think that's a great way to, to kind of look back and, and use history. We tend to think of history of providing a framework for, for our thinking. Um, you know, it's always going to be 
different, but at the underlying drivers, you know, will be the same as as we see the world. You know, technology, infrastructure, population, government granted licenses, and of course, credit are the are the drivers that will always be there. It's just how they manifest will be you know different each time, given the the circumstances and environment that they're that they're working within. Yeah, and it, it never hurts to to be posed with a, a question or a dilemma and, and take a minute to pause and think, okay, is there a frame of reference for this? Is there something that I learned mm. in, in school historically that I can, I can kind of think about? I don't think there's ever harm in, in taking that time to do that, to see if there are some parallels, some things that we can draw from that to, to kind of help guide us forward. Um, as long as we don't use it as a as a, a step-by-step outline and say well here's the problem in front of me this is what happened in 1930 i'm going to follow that step by step um, and expect the same results because it's i i hate to to um spoil uh what anyone thinks but i don't think you're going to get the same results neil can you tell us about where you live sure i i live um in, in Illinois, right in, in the middle of, of what we call the Midwest. Um, I live in Moline, Illinois, which is, is, is where John Deere has been headquartered since 1848. And I, I grew up here. I'm, I'm typically surrounded by uh, corn and soybean fields. <laughs> so it, it's pretty common for me to see John Deere equipment um, driving around. We're uh, getting ready. The, the corn will, will start to be harvested relatively soon here. Fantastic. So I've spent most of my life here. I spent some time on the East Coast as well, but it's most spent most of my life life here. Because it's referred to as the farm implement capital of the world, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, and and that goes back a hundred years, um, where we had manufacturers like John Deere, like um, um, International Harvester, and later uh, Case and, and Case IH. Um, we had wheel manufacturers here. Um, Caterpillar had a had a factory um, on the Iowa side of the river. So where I live is an area called the Quad Cities, and the, the Quad Cities is towns on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River and the Iowa side of the Mississippi River. It's a metro area of of nearly half a million people, um, which is about three hours west of Chicago. So geographically, that's that's where we're at. But I, I remember as a kid seeing train loads of combines as far as the eye could see, because this is very much uh, an epicenter for farm equipment manufacturing and distribution. So the John Deere story, I mean, it goes back a long, long way, doesn't it? You know, you've got in 1837, a, a blacksmith who was dodging bankruptcy invented a plow that really changed the shape of um, farming in the U.S.'s Midwest, um, you know, that invention of the plow had it had unfathomable impact on the productivity of the land, um, and really a huge impact on America as a whole, didn't it? It did, and and it just really came from a marriage of experience and and observation. Really, John Deere was a blacksmith; he would have of repaired plows. He would have fabricated, um, built farm implements, wagon wheels, pots and pans, all the things blacksmiths do. Um, he moves from Vermont to Illinois, which was the frontier 
it was the American frontier when he moved to over the winter of 1836 and 1837 to Illinois. And, and it was really his expertise, his listening to, to, to farmers around him talk about the, the thick soil in Illinois. So you've got prairie grasses, roots grow 10 feet deep, uh, wood moldboard plows, even cast iron moldboard plows. Um, they couldn't break the prairie with it. So what would happen is you're plowing and you're carrying a wooden paddle or, or, or something with you and every five or 10 feet, you're bending over and you're scraping the soil off your moldboard. Mm -hmm. So literally backbreaking work. And um, a lot of people are, are turning around and, and going home, moving, moving back east. John Deere has this, this moment where he sees a broken steel sawmill blade and asks if he can take it back. You know, he must've had that kind of aha moment of mm. okay different different material steel instead of cast iron took it back built that first plow and there's a lot of different versions of the story but at some point a customer took it and tested it and it worked and and really the innovation was two things one was the material uh the other was the the actual shape of the mold board so the soil instead of clogging up and having to bend over and scrape it the soil actually rolls off of the mold board um, so at the end of the day, you're saving a tremendous amount of, of time and labor in, in order to till your field. And, and, and he builds from there. As you said, that has huge productive implications for, um, for the lands, doesn't it? Um, the amount of soil that a farmer can uh, contend to now um, greatly increases Certainly, and, and it's, it's always fascinating to see what people's habits are. And, and Easterners who migrated West, their tendency was instead of trying to farm this big expansive prairie um, where all I have to contend with is prairie grass, I'm gonna find uh, areas that are, are, are heavily timbered. I'm gonna cut down all the timber and, and I'm going to farm that because that's what they had to do out east. Mm -hmm. and, and this mm -hmm. this helps kind of change that mentality mm -hmm. of, okay, well, now I can break the prairie, which in a lot of ways is a lot easier than me having to clear, you know, all of this timber. Yeah. Um, in, in order. And, and so it, it took some time similar to the tractor. You've got to kind of change minds. And, and the way you do that is by proving out a concept. And, and the, the steel plow is no different. I, I often tell people, that, um, you know, it's easy to go, okay, well, John Deere built this plow and I, 10 years later, he was probably building a million plows a year and he was wealthy and all this sort of thing. And the reality was uh, that took about another 40 or 50 years yeah, um, for yeah. all of that to develop because he's building a business on the frontier um, from scratch. And so a product's a product. If you don't have a channel, if you don't have customers, if you don't have raw materials and supplies and a skilled workforce, all things that should sound pretty familiar to us today, yeah, um, you're not going to make a go of it. And in 1860, there were over 2,000 plow manufacturers in the United States, and and I challenge people to name me another one, mm. Mm. <laughs> which which speaks volumes. Oh, absolutely. And did it change, you know, the size of farms? Uh, initially, it didn't change the, the size of farms because that was really, well, farms are, are built to, for, for, for 
for, for sustenance farmings. You're, you're growing enough to feed your family for the most part and maybe, maybe helping out some of those around you. Um, but what it does do is with successful crops year after year to maybe, maybe add um, additional workers and expand slowly uh, over time. The, the size of farms typically are gonna be maybe 40 to, to 60 acres because that's, that's what you're buying um, through government programs. That's basically what's being offered up. But you're probably only actually farming five or 10 acres of that. The, mm -hmm. the reason being is you have a, a short harvest window. You may have a, 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 a you're, you're growing uh, wheat and you've got a week to bring the harvest in. So you can only harvest so much with so many people. And you're maybe harvesting um, an acre a day at best with a crew of maybe eight to 10 people. Um, so there's kind of a, again, that point where you're not profitable because you're investing so much um, in your inputs that you're not, never gonna recover that with what you're growing. So there's kind of a fine line there early on. We'll get in a moment to the impact of that technical revolution of the tractor, but I just wanted to bring up that innovation um, has been well seeded in uh, John Deere as a company. Um, and it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, it was Henry Ford who was credited as inventing the modern day production line. But, you know, Deere himself was pretty inventive, you know, not just revolutionising the plough, but also, he manufactured plows before they were sold, you know, um, you know, placing them up for sale, which was not something that was then done at the time, was it? Yeah, that's right. He, he was, I don't think he gets enough credit for, for his ability to, to build the business. Uh, we, I think we often think of him as, as this blacksmith who, who built a plow and, and probably is traveling everywhere on foot, lugging plows over his shoulder, selling them one off. Um, the reality is when he moved to Moline in 1848, um, he sent one of his, his partners out east to benchmark existing factories. So they were touring mills and in factories, custom design their own equipment and build a state-of-the-art plow factory in Moline, Illinois, which, you know, like I said, was the edge of the frontier. That's different than just erecting a small shop and, and, and building every piece of equipment one off. I, I think a good illustration is John Deere didn't receive his first patent until 1864. So that's 27 years after he built that first plow. And what I find fascinating about it is the, the patent was not for a design, it was for a process so that they could, they could build plows in a uniform way um, that, that, that had consistent quality. So I think that speaks to kind of the way he thought that, yeah. that you know, quality, comes from consistency in manufacturing process. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? That is interesting. And and it was his son, Charles uh, Deere, that set up what was known as marketing centers, wasn't it? That's right. They called them branch houses. And and, and the way he went about it, and, and Charles was, was uh, formally educated. He had an advanced business degree. Uh, the, the way he went about the marketing centers, the, the first one was set up in, in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and then he started building them along um, waterways and railways. 
So think about distributing finished goods to, to regional centers, but also bringing in raw materials. And, and what was really ingenious about these branch houses or sales branches was you would carry a John Deere plow. Well, if, if, if you're farming in Arkansas or South Dakota, you're, you're maybe gonna need a different type of plow, hmm. um, depending on, on your operation. Um, or you maybe need a, a drag harrow or hose or eventually wagons and corn planters. So not only would you carry the John Deere line of goods, but the sales branches would contract with regional manufacturers who built products specific to that region. So now you're, you're essentially um, selling these regional goods and depending on their success, you start to actually absorb those into your operation. So we, we start to see these partnerships with names like um, Deer and Manser, Manser and Tebbets, Deer and Weber. Well, these are co-partnerships. And then over time, they become wholly owned subsidiaries, essentially, which come to be known as John Deere plow companies um, or, the, or these sales branches. So they're very evolutionary, but, but at their heart, you're distributing John Deere products and every year you're adding a little more to the line and, and, and you're getting a little better. Um, so it, quite ingenious, but, but it all centers around transportation. Um, you, you've got to be located. And that's where you see with, with comp uh, competitors, you start to see these hubs. Now all of a sudden there's 20 agricultural equipment manufacturers who all have a sales branch in Kansas City or in Minneapolis or in Dallas. So you start to, to see these hubs grow. It is so important that the transportation, as you said, it, it was the John Deere company has been very strategic in the way in which it's um, located itself um, at those crossroads. Um, you know, back in John Deere's day of uh, you know the, the 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 canals and and rivers and railroads. I I recorded an episode um, recently, episode twenty two, with um, Sal Macogliano about connecting the world, which was about the canal system. Um, and the impact that canals have had, um, you know, throughout the world, but especially America. Um, and it's really interesting when you stop and think about, you know, the ability to move goods up and down the river. It, it, it creates a, a, a huge productive um, uh, productive gains. And, and for John Deere to be able to sell goods at those crossroads, which obviously increases the productivity of the farms, which then allows the farms to you know, to transport more goods using the same transportation routes. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's an amazing concept to me. And, you know, I mentioned being surrounded by corn and, and soy uh, bean fields. Well, I, I'm, I'm also a one minute drive away from the Mississippi River and, and being able to see the, the lock and dam system and watching barge traffic carrying all of, all of that grain and, and corn down the Mississippi River. Um, so it's incredible to see all these different pieces kind of mm. come together. And it's, it's also, um, it's, it's, it's a challenge. You're taking a risk whenever you're doing something like this. Charles Deere spent 30 years of his life trying to build the Hennepin Canal, which basically runs parallel to the Mississippi and Rock Rivers here in Illinois. And by the time they got it built, it was obsolete because it was too mm. shallow. It wasn't wide enough. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a lot of risk 
and a lot of failure. That's a part of this as well, which which I think is a just such a critical part of the of the story. And that for us is really you know what this podcast is about is about the changing productive nature of land that the way in which our drivers come together and 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 change the the productive nature the the, the ability of the railroads crossing with the Mississippi River makes that junction a very important point and of course the the more important it is the more desirable the more desirable um, the more profitable and the more profitable then obviously that will um, uh, be priced into its locational advantage of how much will or someone will pay for that piece of land. It's it, it's it's crucial to see how all these elements come together. And again, it's that history where um, you know it's same same but different each time. I mean, now we just have different technologies. You know, the canals, although you know they they are still used um, and railways are still used, but you know we have other transportation hubs and 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 communication hubs that are you know the new technologies of the day, the the new tractors new fangdangled tractors to uh, to encourage young folk to hang around i guess it, it's a moving target i think that's what's tough is is we we like to look back and and find those lessons but boy it's a moving target all the time yeah. moving ahead and and as much as as people like to to say they they don't want change and they they want things to stay the same i i think if if we all given enough thought we'd say no the, the change is pretty important Mm. And change change represents a lot of really great things. I'm not mm. saying it, it's all the, the greatest, but um, the fact that it's a moving target is, is I think, what makes it it's so exciting because there's there's always something else out there that we're not quite sure what it is. Absolutely, I think we're as a species we're we're wired to innovate. We're wired to change. It's it's how we uh, it's how we are. Coming back to John Deere, I mean, again, I find this really interesting that. The innovation and strategic thinking from a company is really very impressive. I mean, they were well and truly involved in uh, providing employees with affordable housing options, weren't they, to retrain or attract and retain employees? That goes back to the early 19th century. And and, and really, it goes back further. There's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an archivist by training, so I always like to, to point to a document, and I can in this case. But I've heard this story so many times that Moline was largely settled by uh, Swedes and, and Belgians uh, who were attracted to the town to, to work for a variety of, of industries. But one of the, the longstanding stories was when the train uh, stopped in Moline, the conductor would yell out Johnny Deertown. And that's how they knew to, to get off the train. Um, and, and so back then, it was... You, there, there wasn't a national currency, so you're basically being paid on on barter. There was a company store, maybe it was room and board and exchange, and and we know from some some contemporary journals that the only time you actually saw money was if you were discharged or decided to leave. Um, in the early 20th century, post World War One, there was um, a, a real challenge attracting employees. And one of the ways that John Deere did that was to build affordable company housing uh, around its factories. That became really important during the Great Depression where Deere um, stopped, started by reducing the um, rent for employees. And then in some cases, just stopped collecting rent for employees who maybe weren't working at the time. And so they did what they could 
to just maintain a standard of, of living for employees and company housing was an important part of that. It's really interesting, again, you know, that you've got John Deere, you know, they own the land, they collect the rent, they created the value in the housing. I mean, it was a, I guess, a win-win-win in that it was a win that they got to attract and retain employees. The employees had somewhere to to house at, at an affordable rate and and John Deere essentially created an asset that, um, um, you know, enabled them to do things later on. And they also were quite um, progressive in the fact that they encouraged people to to save, didn't they? And, um, you know, create a, a, a nest egg for themselves. Yeah, that's right. Deere, Deere initiated um, a, a program. They called it the thrift program in the early 20th century. And it was basically a campaign to convince employees to put some of their paycheck into savings accounts. And, and this went on for decades. This supplemented um, a pension plan that was put into place in the early 20th century. And, and this really came to the forefront um, during the depression when banks were foreclosing in the United States. And uh, local bacon Moline, where most John Deere employees had their savings, their life savings, was threatened with foreclosure. And, and our CEO, Charles Deere Wyman, and the board of directors um, raised in, in total more than a million dollars to save the bank. And, and the reason they did that was they said, we've been, we've been preaching to employees for decades to save money. We've been telling them to put it into this bank. Um, if we don't save the bank, they lose everything. And that's as much on us as, mm. as anybody. Mm. And so they raised the, the money. Wyman himself put up half of that money the, the, overnight um, in order to keep the bank solvent. There was an embezzlement and, and all sorts of things going on. Of Bad course there was. Transactions and, <laughs> oh, yeah. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, and, and, you know, you kind of think, okay, 1929, like these are people like on their, their rotary phones, patching into an operator, making phone calls, trying to, you know, they can't wire money. Mm. So, you know, there's a story of, of cash being flown in on an airplane from Chicago because they physically had to deposit the cash at the bank in order for the state auditor to approve it. And all of this is happening in, in 24 hours. It's pretty amazing to, to think about all these things that happen. But at the heart of it is, these are our employee savings. And yeah. if, if we don't step in, this is our responsibility to do so. And they did. But once again, there's um, hey, history kind of repeats in that, you know, John Deere was the co-founder of the first national bank, wasn't he? The um, Back in the day. He was. He, he was the co-founder of, of the first bank in Moline. He was the second mayor of Moline. He um, helped build the, the cemetery that he's actually buried in. Uh, Riverside Cemetery. Um, so he was he he was a, a plow manufacturer. He was a salesman, a businessman. He was a philanthropist. He was a politician. He did he did all the things um, that you do to support your community, and 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 that's what it's about. Is yeah, you have a company. Um, how are you reinvesting that in your community? You know, when 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 you see your employees on the street. Can you look them in the eye? I think that's what it's about, and 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 that's was incredibly important to to John Deere, and I think he 
he led by example. And there's a lot of examples of John Deere being a really hard guy to be around sometimes mm. because he was, he was a perfectionist. He liked to do things his way. Um, he, he could be kind of the absent-minded professor where he would just drop everything and go somewhere else and not tell anyone because he had an idea. So there's plenty of that as well. But um, he, for, from, from what I can tell, having studied him for 20 years, he's, he's someone you would want to know. He's someone who would, would look out for you, who mm. tried to keep everyone's best interests in mind and was always striving to do better and improve. But yeah, that connection with the bank and then the, the depression and then that money eventually. So basically Deere now held the, the ownership stake, the equity position in the bank. And eventually that became the foundations for the John Deere Foundation. Um, mm. So there was kind of an interesting tie-in, which is the philanthropic arm of John Deere. So that that ties all the way back to the Great Depression. So you've got a absolutely making lemonade out of lemons there, haven't you, where the local bank in the Depression is looking to go under. They come in, John Deere comes in and um, uh, and saves the bank essentially owns it, owns it and runs it profitably and uses it to fund the philanthropic um, arm of uh, of John Deere it's um, it's quite a quite an interesting story isn't it it's an interesting story and it's a great example of it's it's great to have a plan but sometimes it's how you respond versus what your plan is and I think it's mm. a great example of of how do you respond um, which kind of goes back to, to your, what are your values? What do, what do you stand for? Because that's going to drive a lot of your behavior and, and a lot of those decisions that you have to make in real time. Mm. I've heard that um, that the original automobiles were often referred to as the mechanical cockroach. You know, I kind of like that. Would tractors simply referred to as the mechanical horse or were they referred to by some other derogatory term? I've, I've never heard the mechanical uh, cockroach, but oh, it's- Oh, really? Never it, heard it, the mechanical cockroach? No, but it's my new favorite phrase. <laughs> so I'm going to be sure to, to to use that. Yeah, the tractor was often referred to as as a mechanical horse um, in, in its basic form and, and function. That's exactly what it was. So I think that's a an easy attribution to make. So we were talking before about- the transition from the horse to the tractor. Um, the Luddites were famous for smashing new textile machinery in, in uh, protest of progress. Did anything like that happen with the tractor? I've, I've never found really indica- any indication of, of that sort of thing happening. Um, but, but it's pretty amazing. Tractors didn't outnumber horses on American farms. Um, until the 1950s. So it, it was really a, a long transition. And, um, and so the reality is that, that tractors and horses work side by side for, for, for decades um, because they both had their place. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one, one of the other challenges with, with adoption of a, of, a, of a tractor, and this is really something that John Deere studied quite a bit, which kind of delayed their entry into the tractor business is, okay, you're a, you're a farmer, you buy a tractor, you don't have a single implement that's compatible with that tractor. So 
if, if you're selling a tractor, you've got to design uh, a new hitch for your grain binder, for your corn planter, for your, for your plows. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's different angles, it's different tolerances. Um, all of those things have to be re-engineered and redesigned from scratch. Now you're, you're, instead of building a lot of your implements from wood, now you're building them out of steel. And, and in some cases they need to be heavier. In some cases they need to be lighter. So you're basically having to redesign everything you build in a short period of time. And, and, and it's an area where Henry Ford was different than the others. He said, I'm just going to kill the world with volume and I'm going to build a million tractors a year. He never came close to that, but he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to build a single implement because I know there's no money in it. So his, his strategy was incredibly different than a company like Deere who said, well, we've been designing implements for 80 years. Yeah. That's kind of our business. Yeah. The tractor we're not sure about yet, but we know having partnered with tractor, tractor manufacturers for almost 30 years um, in different shapes and sizes, like they understood the engineering of redesigning their line and what that meant. Um, and, and so they understood that you had to take kind of a long-term view of this mm. and, and, and get it right in, in order to, to do all of those different things at, at once. So it was a different challenge than someone like Henry Ford had. It's a really interesting um, point though, isn't it? That, that the development of the tractor, I mean, it wasn't compatible with all those other implements. Um, yeah, that would have been hard for, from a sales point of view, to convince a farmer of the benefits of, of the tractor, the cost of the tractor, and then the cost of having to essentially retool um, would have been a big ask. It was a huge ask. Henry Ford started throwing in a free plow with the purchase of any tractor. And so, you, you know, again, you see all these kind of tactics and, and techniques in order to convince a farmer to, to invest in, in a tractor. But again, when you, when, when you say the, the farm tractor is this fundamental shift, it is because of everything that went along with it. It's, it's, um, it's like I talk about if, if we put a tractor on exhibit, it's, it's amazing to see a restored tractor sitting there, but it's also incomplete if it's not got something hitched to it mm. or if it's got a, a you know a cultivator um mm. a rig mounted or 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 something else because otherwise it's a tractor it's you can drive it but you're not doing anything with it unless mm. you're pulling something or pushing something mm. and that's where the productivity gain comes from isn't it it's the the movement of those um of those implements um you often talk about um, the tractor as being an innovation story. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? At its very heart, it's, it's an innovation story for one, because it's something that in, in, in the form of, and, and so like most innovations, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's, it's kind of this process over time. So from the tractor, you go from, um, stationary engines, steam engines, to gasoline and kerosene powered um, engines from large tractors to small tractors. So this, there's this, this evolution. But you think again about innovation is, is very much about these kind of this, this iterative process of, okay, well, this worked, this didn't work. 
now we're going to use those things and we're maybe going to develop a new machine form, something that does something that it couldn't do before. And so in the aggregate, and, and that's how I think about innovation, uh, which I think is, is separate from invention, mm. but innovation is about, about doing something different mm. and doing something that works and is successful. Again, I go back to John Deere himself because it's, there's, there's others who were, who were developing steel plows around the same time as John Deere. And, but, but the big difference was John Deere built it. He sold it. Those two things have to go together because if you build it and put it in your garage, who cares? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, how innovative is that? Um, so, so you're creating a market and then what comes next? John Deere didn't build the same steel plow for the next 20 years. Each year it was a little different it, it, he continued to innovate. So it becomes very evolutionary in that way. And, um, so, so that's how I think about the farm tractor. And, and really, I think that's what led to Henry Ford's um, eventual failure in 1928 when he exited the tractor business, which is his approach was, I've designed the perfect tractor, much like he said he designed the perfect automobile with the Model T, and we're not making any changes. There's some minor modifications over the years but it's very much a one size fits all approach where his competition said, no, because every farm's different. Like my neighbor's farm is different than my farm. If you're two States away or, you know, you're a province away in Canada or wherever you are. Um, the innovation is how do you evolve that design? How do you, how do you make it something better than it was so that different machines work for different people in different applications in different places? And we're talking things like changing in topography, changing in soil types, changing in the sort of um, implements that are being pulled. So, you know, whether you need a, a, a very strong heavy tractor or something's light and maneuverable. I mean, they're the sort of things that you, you're talking about, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, how often are you rotating? You know, today, are you are you planting cover crops? Um, yeah, is, is, is it hilly? Maybe your soil tends to be wetter than your neighbor. Uh, because they've, you know, maybe there's a creek running through the middle of your neighbor's farm. Um, there's, there's a lot of variations, and even on your own farm, that can change from year to year, de mm. depending on, 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 on inputs, on weather. So these are variables that farmers deal with today, as they always have, on, on a regular basis. I, I, I just read this week. Um, uh, someone was writing about this notion of, well, farmers you know, in certain parts of the world where they get the winners off. Mm. And, and, and the point was, okay, well, the winners off are spent doing a lot of the work, which is planning all of this for the upcoming year mm. and, and dealing with all of these, these variables and all these inputs and changing prices and, and things that are often out of your control. Um, hopefully you're learning, you know, from, from previous years but it's, it's ever evolving. You, you, you just can't do the same thing from one year to the next. I think farming is an incredible example of that. I find that amazing with Henry Ford that, you know, you've got this visionary guy who invented the Model T. He conceived the modern day production line and yet he just didn't move with the times or didn't see the need for a tractor to 
fit its purpose. He just saw the production of the pro- of of the tractor. One size fits all. It's it's sort of you know it's it's almost at odds as to what defines him. He's such a fascinating figure, you know, to go from someone with a, a very rudimentary education to developing uh, his automobile and driving marketing. He was incredibly stubborn, um, but incredibly personable at the same time. He was often on the wrong side of history, just with his political views mm-hmm. uh, and his social views. But boy, when he thought he had something worked out, then nothing was ever going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I'm part of that. You're, you're a product of your times. I also think he read his own headlines, which is a yeah. problem. And, and you, you start to kind of believe what people are writing about you. But was, yeah, he was a polarizing I'll, figure for sure. I find it amazing too that, you know, he became a, a folk hero, you know, worshipped by Americans. And yet he worked exclusively to eliminate the human element from most human occupations. It's kind of bizarre in some ways, isn't it? It's incredibly bizarre. And, and there's so many parallels to that with with his his agricultural background. He had this obsession. His sister talked about this obsession from a very early age of 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 eliminating drudgery. He used this word all the time in his autobiography that he he wanted to mechanize everything um, to the point of perfection where it does take the human element out of it. Mm. And and it's it, you know, but while he's he had this tendency, especially with 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 his engineers who were designing his tractor early on, they, they set up, they had a blackboard where they were drawing out designs or they would tally production. And he sat in his mother's rocking chair while he was watching the state of the art, you know, assembly line at work. So you have this, this juxtaposition of Henry Ford, who's driving all of this technology and eliminating drudgery and mechanizing everything sitting in his mother's chair um, because of the nostalgia and the memories, which is why he bought the family farm and it goes out on, on camping trips with the, with the vagabonds and is always trying to get in touch with nature. These, these two sides to him, which I think are kind of inside most people. Yeah. And, yeah, and, it, and, but he was living it, you know, when you're the richest man in the country you um you're actually living it out and so it's there for everyone to see and so he's and and actually that's that's a lot of my my research into the tractor industry started with henry ford because i kind of got drawn into his character yeah and and fascinated by this idea that the model t got in his way because his dream was to build a farm tractor from a very early age he he saw a steam engine at the age of 12 and was just mesmerized by it. And so that was in his mind and the model T kind of got in his way. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how, how history evolves like that. So Henry Ford was very dogmatic with his approach with the, uh, the farm tractor. Um, John Deere was a little bit late to the scene, but were very cautious. Um, and saw the implements 
as being in a lot of ways the driver of the of the tractor technology. Um, how did that differ from International Harvester? How did they approach it? Because they're the other big name in this story, aren't they? That's right. Three companies, three three very different stories. International Harvester is 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 a hundred million dollar company. They're the fourth largest company in the United States. They're the first um, company to create what they call a full line, which is you're building everything for the farm. And and International Harvester is nearly as old as as John Deere in terms of of age of companies. They they start by uh, trying to build an automobile, which is not uncommon for agricultural uh, manufacturers in that period of time. That leads in, into the tractor. They become an early leader in the tractor industry. So they've, they've really got a stranglehold um, over most types of machines. John Deere is a much smaller company there. Oh, when harvesters formed in 1902, John Deere is a tenth of their size. Um, in 1910, they kick off. John Deere kicks off a, a reorganization and consolidation plan. They they triple the size of the company. They're now a 30 million dollar company. They consolidate those sales branches. They become wholly owned subsidiary. And some of this is is driven by tax law, by the way. Mm-hmm. So context is important. Some of this is driven by, okay, well, sales branches are now being double taxed. So we're going to roll them into the organization. So we only pay those taxes once. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So that's driving driving some of this. But Deere is, is trying to become a, a full line. Well, to do this, they borrow quite a bit of money. And they decide in 1912 to go into the harvesting business, which is international harvesters bread and butter. That they, they, they own 85%. Um, of the domestic market. And in short time, over half of harvester sales are going to be overseas outside of North America. So John Deere is now competing with with Harvester. Um, They borrowed a lot of money, but they decided in 1912 to start development of a tractor. And so over the next six years, while they're trying to figure out a way to get into the business, the industry is starting to evolve from these large tractors that are you know, 40, 50, 60 horsepower to these smaller machines that are maybe 16 horsepower. Um, so Deere's really struggling figuring out what customers want. They design a single cylinder tractor, two cylinder tractor, four cylinder tractor. John Deere people who know the sound of a two cylinder tractor, which was built from 1918 to 1960, are always shocked when I say, well, one of our first tractors was a four-cylinder tractor. Yeah, right. But, but what they struggled with was the industry was so small and so fragmented, and it took such an investment to design and build something and market something, they knew they weren't going to make any money for maybe a decade. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty heavy investment for a market that you don't know is real, and you don't even know what the market is. So they really took their time. Um, and then, of course, they learned that Henry Ford was going into the tractor business. And if if there's a sane bone in your body, um, which William Butterworth, dear CEO, was incredibly sane um, and thoughtful, and he said, we're not going to compete with that. And, and if we're yeah. going to do it, it's got to be a tractor that's sold to a different segment of the industry that's not going to compete with a Fordson. And, yeah. and that was really the the strategy going in. It's really interesting that, isn't it? I mean, like whenever any new technology um, 
pops its head up, you know, whether it be telephone, electricity, internet companies, cryptocurrencies, whatever it is, there's always, you know, it always starts with a very strong flurry of activity and then you get the consolidation as companies start to fall and they're bought up by, you know, the stronger participants. Um, and this happened a lot, you know, all over America. I mean, there was there was literally thousands of, of companies producing tractors, weren't there, in the early days? Yeah, it went from it went from a six or seven um, to eight or nine years later, it was 150, mm-hmm. and then a decade later, it was back to a handful. And you yeah. see these consolidate, and that doesn't even count, you know, lots of these machinists and entrepreneurs, and, and a lot of folks who built one or two or three tractors, or maybe had designs on paper. And so that's been kind of fun as I've gone through this research to, to go through all of these names. And we're really fortunate because the United States government started tracking some of this stuff. Early on, there weren't even industry statistics. So you don't even know what's being built by who. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you start to see the evolution of, of, of branding companies who are, are naming their machines after their horsepower. So a lot of machines will just be called a 1224 because it had, uh, 12 horsepower draw bar, basically pulling something or 24 on the belt where you, you, you hook it up and run another machine. And then you start to see companies whose tractors are named after them. So you have a, a, a case tractor or you have a parrot or you have a hider. These are typically the names of the founders of the company or something. And then you get into this age where you get the bull and the patriot and the national and all these you know so there's all these kind sounds of like footy stories. teams or something isn't it <laughs> yeah so you, there's all these stories within these stories of how they're trying to position themselves uh within the marketplace which is really fascinating as well and you tend to find the same people keep popping up um the mm-hmm. same people who have failed nine times already but somehow keep convincing investors to, yeah, to, to, yeah. to put money up because you've got the new idea that you're pretty sure is going to take off. So there's plenty of that as well. There was quite a bit of cooperation between the big three, though, weren't there? Between um, Fordson, International Harvester, and John Deere. They, in a lot of ways, they, they cooperated and colluded in, in many regards. They did. There's always that behind the scenes. And Henry Ford was always very much an outsider. You, you had these industry organizations that would get together and then those, those organizations began to consolidate. So the, they're looking at things um, like standardizing bolt patterns, for example. So you think about, okay, you have 150 manufacturers and they're all, they're all developing their own specifications. That means every repair is a custom repair. Yeah. So, so yeah. you start to see these, these organizations form and consolidate. You have wagon manufacturers that start to consolidate with the automobile manufacturers. And a big victory for the tractor manufacturers is when, the, when, when their engineering organization consolidates with the automobile manufacturers. Yeah. So they consider that a major uh, victory. So you have a lot of that going on behind the scenes. Uh, John Deere and an international harvester in the 1920s were collaborating on tractor electrification, believe it or not. So yeah, there was some okay. collaboration there. And, and think about it. They were doing the exact same thing we do today. They were going to industry conferences. They yeah. were giving joint presentations and they were studying. 
and Ford was sending representatives to Moline to visit John Deere. John Deere was going to visit International Harvester. They were visiting other manufacturers. They're benchmarking. They're comparing notes. Um, so, so in that respect, the world wasn't much different than it is today. Mm. We we just heard less about it. And, and in fact, John Deere and and Internet or uh, John Deere and and Henry Ford were being seen together so frequently that that in, in 1919, the, the local newspaper here said that Henry Ford's acquisition of John Deere was inevitable. It was going to happen any day now because <laughs> the two started collaborating. John Deere was going to build plows for Henry Ford, even though we just introduced our own tractor. So there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of dynamics going on there. And that's definitely what sucked me into the story as I kept scratching in my head saying, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. It is. And then you... You know, you go back to the concept of all this stuff happening and, you know, at the end of the day, it's all just manifesting in increased productivity, increased values in land prices. It's it's amazing that, that you know, I, I guess that's the outcome of the story, but the backstory is is so intriguing is what's, what's happening behind the scenes. It's so intriguing to look at that. And again, you look at things that happened, you look at things that didn't happen. Uh, and a lot of this is driven by personalities. It's, it's built on the ability of two people to trust each other. Mm. And, and it's very much a, a, it feels like a card game sometime where one side doesn't want to show their hand to the other side. And, and that's where we have the luxury of history where I can look and say, okay, well, Cyrus McCormick from International Harvester, I can see his notes and uh, on his meeting with William Butterworth at John Deere. And I can set William Butterworth's notes right next to him. And I can see in real time yeah. what each of them knows. But at the time, neither of them knew what the other one knew. knew. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's that's kind of the the fun of it, where we get to, to kind of peek in and go, oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. I also know that it didn't work. But... <laughs> At the time, you thought it was working. Yeah, but a crack. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I really enjoy out of all this. And 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 when I get questions from people, you know, who who over the years say we we have this letter from William Butterworth where he says, I, I I'm putting a stop to all tractor uh, uh, development at Deer. Yeah. Well, if you take that sentence out of context, it just sounds like he was opposed to the tractor and and let's not do it. Well, then you kind of pull back a little bit, read the rest of the letter. Yeah. Now start looking into the context. Mm. Ford had just debuted his machine at a, at a show. It's the first time anyone had seen it. He's trying to, to, to secure additional investment from bankers who are all telling him no. Uh, World War I is in year two and making assumptions that the United States is going to enter the war at some point. It's a lot of other factors, so you can't dismiss it as well, in one sentence, in one letter out of context, he says, shut down tractor, you yeah. know, R&D. Yeah. You, you just can't do that. So so that was kind of my effort here was to, to pull the curtain back a little bit mm. and, and start to understand the context because that, that drives so much. You mentioned the war, World War One. I. I mean, what impact did that have on the tractor business? It really drove development of machine forms and, and, and like war often does, it throws a lot of resources at, at research and development. 
it it throws a lot of of prema premature design into the field for operations. So you learn a lot from failure, um, especially you know during the war where it has to be successful. Mm. Um, you you also see 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 things that impact the the industry for years to come. The the track type tractor, which was mostly adopted for uh, war application in the United States, there's really no domestic supply for track type tractors. These are used often out west for for kind of boggy land, softer land. We see track type tractors tractors all the time now, um, but a lot of those were were a hundred percent used um, shipped to to Western Europe. Um, for war use. And so when the war ends, there's no domestic market. And a lot of those companies go bankrupt, they consolidate. Um, and so wheeled tractors, which still have domestic uh, presence, really grow at a faster rate than those track type tractors. Uh, so you see a lot of that. You saw in the UK that all their domestic tractor production is reallocated for wartime production. So now they're, they're, um, importing American tractors. So there's a kind of a new competition for American tractors in the UK. And that's actually how Henry Ford enters the tractor business is through government contracts um, with, with the English. So it really drives a lot of the, the timeline, the machine forms and um, the consolidation and existence or future non-existence of a lot of these companies. What about the impact it had on um, production capabilities, and I don't just mean that in terms of production of the tractors, but also um, the production of within the farm environment, because you know you would have had the uh, increased loss of labour um, for those going to fight the war. Um, so, you know, how did that sort of pan out? Did that help with the adaptation of some of the mechanical advancements or adaptation of those advancements to the farm? It did accelerate the adoption. Uh, you, you certainly had a labor shortage. You also had a horse shortage. So that's the other piece of this. Your battle with the horse to replace the horse. Well, the United States is shipping millions of horses um, overseas to support the war effort uh, every year as well, even mm -hmm. before the end of the war. So that it, it certainly accelerates um, on-farm adoption um, because it, in most cases you had to. And, and, yeah. and then again, where things uh, really come to a head is when, when all of those folks return home. Uh, most of those horses did not, did not come back. But a lot of people who did come back from the war instead of returning to rural America, um, 1920 was the first year there were, there were more people in American cities than, than on the farm, or at least in, in, in rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. when they returned from the war, many of them did not return to the farm. So you see this really seismic change in, in demographics um, in, in the United States. So certainly, you know, war accelerates a lot of things. Yeah. It certainly accelerated um, adoption of the tractor. What about the role of women on the farm? Did that, um, with the labor shortage through the war, did um, uh, that become more prominent? It did. It's it's yet another case of of women stepping up, mm. um, and and on the American farm. I mean, women had always worked on the farm. They'd always had roles on the farm, and and again, we can kind of fall into to gender stereotypes of well, women were, 
were were baking and and feeding you know the farm labor yeah. and of course there was plenty of that but you you start to see even before the war uh for example small stationary engines which were driving um you know you could use a, a small gasoline powered like a one and a half horsepower or three horsepower engine to to power a corn sheller or a washing machine um, or an irrigation pump and and a lot of these that technology was often targeted as women but now you can build an entirely separate business um, from your husband who's out in the field uh, growing corn or wheat or, or beans or, or, or rice or whatever um, but during the war all across the world women certainly stepped up to fill those voids there wasn't so much women working in factories in a manufacturing capacity that really happened in world war ii um but yeah. they they stepped up in so many other ways yeah yeah i find that we probably haven't really maybe touched on that enough that most of the discussion has been around the movement from the horse to the tractor and the implements behind the tractor but uh, as you said you know you take a wheel off put a drive belt on and all of a sudden you can power all sorts of other pieces of machinery it's a it you know that in itself is a, has huge implications from a um uh, from a farm setting doesn't it? it it does it's 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 hard to understate the the changes that were taking place i mean you you could electrify your your house um mm. you know running running from the the belt of your your tractor um there's there's so many things that you can do it doesn't mean that it's it's economical to do it necessarily yep. you know in some cases it is but the, the technology starts to become more reliable yeah and and now it's a possibility where it wasn't a possibility before now instead of your entire life resolving around a town center in a small relatively small geographic area now you're mobile with your automobile mm. um now you can you can grow more you've you've you know you're selling eggs or milk um cream you're taking it into town because now you can take your automobile to town or, or your your farm wagon pulled by a tractor or whatever so you become more mobile you're more productive your your income starts to grow um all of those things on a large scale do an awful lot mm. Mm, huge. Uh, innovation has been a centerpiece of this discussion, um, starting obviously with the, the with the plow and the broad range of farm implements that John Deere produced. But there's many other in, innovations that um, uh, that they've been involved with. Um, even they got involved in the bicycle fad of the 1890s, didn't they? That's right. John Deere came out with it. Well, and actually this was driven by one of the sales branches in, in Minneapolis who, who caught on to the bicycle trend and started manufacturing bicycles in the 1890s. I think they were built in Chicago. Um, and and, and there, uh, one model was called the Deere Roadster, for example. <laughs> what and, a and, cool name. Yeah, and these are bicycles. They, they had wooden wooden rims. And, uh, but they very much, you know, they look like a bicycle that you would buy today. It, it's amazing yeah. that the, the general form has not changed a whole lot. 
that that was one of two times that John Deere entered the bicycle business. The other time was in the 1970s where there was another, another major bicycle uh, craze around the world. I, um, that 1890s bicycle craze, I, I find, I find that really interesting. I, I read an article that in uh, Melbourne, in the main drag, Collins Street, um, on the, I can't remember the name of the building, and it was on the third or the fifth floor or something, that they actually had a, what they called a cyclotarium. And I've never heard that word before where people would apparently go to this, um, uh, basically go to this place, this massive room where they would hire bikes and ride them around on the, whatever it was, the third or the fifth floor of this building and, and, you know, drink cups of tea and, and have cucumber sandwiches. It's, and it was a, yeah, a cyclotarium. I've, I've never heard that uh, word before. Have you come across that? I've not come across that, but it just proves that people will do anything for a little entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? And, but, you, uh, but you know, it's, it's hard to, a bicycle is is a technology. It's yeah. it's transportation. There's and and if it's something you've never seen before, mm. you're going to be drawn to that. And I think that's what's so cool about it. I talk about that with well, I can put a an old walking plow on exhibit, and to to most people, you're going to go, oh, that's an old piece of oh, farm yeah. equipment. But yeah. you've got to put yourself in the shoes of someone who had never seen that before. Yeah. And said, oh, my goodness, like I remember as a kid farming with a wood mold board walking plow that I hated. Mm-hmm. This makes my life so much easier. Like this is yeah. the great you got to you got to transport yourself to that time um, and, and kind of remember that and go, yeah, the reason this sold and this was a big deal was because it was it was future tech and it was the latest and greatest and it was going to change your life. It's amazing. It's amazing how quickly we lose that perspective because now, I mean, the the technology on the John Deere um, farm equipment it, it's it's space age, isn't it? it it's unbelievable what uh, what's in these machines now. They're they're so smart. They're so durable. It's 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 just really incredible to to see. I, I always think about. Um, uh, in an article in in Fortune magazine in, in 1966 that said that there was more technology on Midwestern farms than there was um, in our effort to go to the moon. And, and, yeah, and they were wow. talking about tech and John Deere tractors in the 1960s. Um, wow. and, and, and so we, we were soon after experimenting with remote controlled tractors. And uh, Henry Dreyfus, who was an industrial designer who worked with Deere for, for decades, uh, gave a speech in the 60s talking about an, an age where you would have a handheld device uh, that would help you control some of the movements of the machines and you could just wave your hand in front of an instrument control um, and, and it would control uh, the, the machine and 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 so it's pretty incredible to to to, to think about those things. Um, we we had a, a the first director of what was called the soil culture department at Deer. Uh, he started in 1912, so he went around collecting soil samples and and studying farms, and he ran the experimental farms at Deer. And and he he wrote an article about what the the farm of the future would look like in 1940. 
Yeah, okay. And and he talked about how tractors would would be be run by batteries instead of electric or in, instead of, of gasoline engines. This is four years before John Deere de even introduced a tractor, by the way, and he's already talking about the next generation of tractor. He talked about um, how harvesting equipment would have moisture sensors um, on them and that some of this equipment would be run by solar power. So all these very futuristic, and, and I think yeah. that's one of the cool, just, just, I think it's it's something that we don't connect to the farm often, which is yeah. the farm. The farm is about what's next. Mm. Uh, it always has been. It's rooted in tradition, but that tradition is always about what's next. And so, a lot of these people, when you dig into it, there's a lot of futurists in in the ag in the ag business. Um, and and I think that's just just incredibly cool. Well, it's amazing to think that self-driving cars are still a concept, but farmers have been letting their tractors drive themselves for, you know, over a decade. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 often overlooked because most people don't see it on a daily basis, and and we're we we know what we see, and um, but it's it's been out there. It's been under development for a long time. It's been in operation for a long time. Can you tell me about the earliest developments because John Deere was very quick to adapt, you know, G GPS and auto steer, weren't they? Can you tell us a bit about the history of that? Yeah, they were. That that really came about for John Deere in the early 1990s. And 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 again, this is the matter, and it's very similar to the tractor um, in the early 20th century is, you know, you can imagine kind of doing this survey of, well, you know, what what does the future look like? Because at some point you make decisions and say, well, we're gonna we're gonna develop this, but we're not gonna develop this. Yeah. And, and if we're gonna develop something like what they ended up calling uh, uh, creating a group called the Precision Farming Group in 1993, and you say, okay, well, we think we think GPS, we think satellites are 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 the future, and you can go back to um, you know, government satellites and remote sensing and work that's been done over the past and, and Deer had worked with universities and with NASA and different organizations. So again, these things kind of kind of simmer over time. Mm -hmm. But but in 1993, it was okay, we're creating the precision farming group because we think that the future um, is is in this area. Well then how do we do it? Yeah. Do we do you go buy technology? Do you develop the technology yourself? Do you partner? Is it a, a, a combination of all of the above, which it often is? Um, but John Deere went, went into that business and solved a, a very real problem of basically um, signal correction on, on satellites because a problem is they're not self-correcting at that time. Right, yes. And, and, and so you go in and you solve this very real problem. Now, all of a sudden, you've got something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and again, like making that connection to John Deere, I think is not natural for a lot of people uh, because you think it's a government organization or, or, um, or some, you know, tech company that's kind of driving that. But then, then you kind of go from there and you continue to, to build and evolve. And, and, and when, I, when I see um, moisture sensors on combines in the 1990s, 
I think of Dr. Warren E. Taylor in 1914 talking about the farm of the future and, and how combines will have moisture sensors in 1940. <laughs> it's just amazing to think, like we see, we see the technology of today and we just accept that as the standard, but the evolution is huge. You know, when you think about, you know, we've discussed today from the advent of a single plow by John Deere all the way through now to, you know, very technologically advanced uh, tractors. I mean, you kind of forget about the history and you forget about the impact that that history has had or the development has had on the productive nature of humans and the productive nature of the land itself. It's, But it is absolutely profound, isn't it? It's had unbelievable impact upon you know our lives and society and, and commerce and the economy it has it's incredibly profound i think what's what's different and and i'm certainly not an expert in, in this area but my observation is i think the cycles are shorter than, mm. than they used to be um adoptions a lot faster and and i'm sure for for many reasons but i think the cycles are, are smaller because studying John Deere history for as long as I have, you can kind of look and say, okay, well, these there's these kind of eras where really important things happen. And then you you kind of build on that for the next 40 or 50 years. But then over time, 40 or 50 years becomes 30 years and then 20 years and 10 years mm. before you have to reinvent yourself and, and you need to do the next thing. So I think those cycles are getting shorter. And, and that doesn't mean that that's always going to be that way. But that seems to be the the trend over the last few decades, at least. And when you think about it, I mean, it does make sense in a lot of ways. Those S curves need to be uh, shortened because, you know, back a hundred or one hundred and fifty years ago, you know, it, it took time to dist- to manufacture and distribute 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 um, the products, you know, to to ship it up and down the Mississippi River, etc. Whereas now with the transportation and adaptation and, and communications, things are always going to happen much quicker. You know, the, the time that it would have taken a salesperson to go through the different towns and communicate uh, and for those farmers to first see the technology or hear of the technology, you know, see and touch and et cetera. Whereas now there's just so much information. It just flows so quickly that decisions are much easier made. And as I said, the, the, the products themselves can be manufactured and shipped, shipped much quicker. Yeah, it, it took it took John Deere six weeks to move from Vermont to Illinois in in eighteen thirty six. Took six weeks to get there. And I and think it takes my I think it takes my seventeen year old son six weeks to clean his room. Uh, my son's eleven and he hasn't cleaned it yet, so you're <laughs> ahead of me. But I mean, the fact that we're we're halfway around the world, we're talking to each other in real time. Yeah, and and maybe I'm easily impressed, but that's incredibly impressive. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. When when we're talking before about about the war efforts, you know, um, speeding up the adaptation of uh, of technology, uh, I didn't make the point then, but I was going to. But you know, what's happened in the last you know couple of years um, 
with the virus, the coronavirus, you know, and the adaptation and uh, just the expectation of the use of, you know, communication systems like, you know, Zoom and Teams and et cetera. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? It's just really, again, it's just accelerated the the uh, adaptation and acceptance of technological advancements. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I, I, I often try to put things in context of who I've known in my life. And, and I talk about the origins of the tractor industry in the early 20th century, and you look at World War One, and my great grandfather was alive. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and that's someone who I've met in my life. And so when you, you put it in that context, it doesn't feel so far removed. Mm. Now, I don't, I, I was young and didn't have memories of ever having those conversations, but we were alive at the same time. And I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Do you find it ironic that? The name John Deere is synonymous with tractors, and yet the man who the company was uh, named after never actually saw a tractor. It's incredibly ironic. <laughs> I, I I think I think he had visions of one. He he partnered with a steam engine manufacturer in the 1850s, believe it or not, and actually designed wow. a plow uh, that was was run behind the steam engine at the the Illinois State Fair in 1858. And John Deere came back and said. I can see a day where, where I can see these pulling a, an eight or 10 or 12 bottom plow, uh, you know, roaming the prairies. And uh, he also said, I'm going to build one in the next year. And that was the last time he ever talked on the subject. So I think he found out it was more than he bargained for. Um, but he died in 1886. The, the first, what's uh, typically uh, attributed as the first successful gasoline tractor uh, built by John Freilich in Iowa was in, in 1892. So John Deere missed it by, by six years. Yeah. So he would have saw, he would have saw something that, that looked like that, that resembled that in some form. But, um, you know, John Deere's first tractor production tractor rolled out in 1918. So he was, he was far removed in our second CEO, Charles Deere never saw a John Deere farm tractor. Um, but in the last year of his life, he was building a deer branded car, believe it or not, an automobile. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. So, so, so he, he would have understood. Makes you stop and think, you know, what are we going to be doing in 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 years from now? Uh, I mean, the advancements are just, as we said, just, so rapid and so amazing the 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 import that it's had or the productivity gains and you just wonder what they are going to be and where they're going to come from as you said i'm i'm very much like yourself i'm very much a a glass half full i i see the tremendous um you know lifting living standards that you know, technology and advancement brings not to say that everything's good. You've always going to have some yin and yang. Um, unfortunately that's part of life. Um, but you know, I, I can't help but be completely optimistic for the future. Um, both from a living standard and from an investment point of view that things will only get better. Um, and our lives will, will become easier and, um, you know, more enjoyable. I agree. I think it's about it's about increasing those standards at all time and 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 kind of increasing equity. And, and I think we need to increase equity kind of at a, a disproportionate rate um, for the better mm. to 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 kind of bring more of that to the world. And and as I 
I mean, I, I very much am one who I, I, I study history because I find inspiration in it. And, and, I, and, and it connects me to, to people who are, are trying to do the right thing and, and do the, the next great thing. And so I find a lot of inspiration in that. And, and I hope people can use history. Nostalgia is incredibly important, hmm. but, but also I think, I think history can drive us to action. It can give us perspective and insights that maybe we wouldn't get um, in, in other areas. And I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Neil, what a fantastic discussion today. What have we missed? Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add? We've probably got another 100 years to cover. But um, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground and, and I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, as, as you can tell, I'm really excited about, about all of this and enjoy talking uh, about it and appreciate your very thoughtful questions and, and kind of pursuing these adjacencies, which I think are great. Yeah, well, that's, look, I mean, from our point of view, I mean, that's, you know, what we take out of this story. Um, you know, PAFO, as I said, it's all about property. It's about real estate. It's about the land, the value of land. And and that's very much driven, the the value that, 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 um, that a piece of land has is very much driven by its productive nature. And, and this is, as you said, right from the start, it's a productivity story. The tractor is all about creating, you know, more from less, you know, less inputs, um, more outputs, you know, less man hours, less costs. And that is always just going to manifest in, you know, productivity gains and productivity drives profitability and profitability will always be used to build up the price of the, um, the lands with the most uh, desirable locations. I mean, that's, um, you know, that's how it works. And I use the example a lot if, that if I was to offer you a hundred acres of lush green pastures or barren dirt, uh, to farm, you know, which would you choose? And I mean, clearly you're going to take the, the green pastures because you can grow more stuff. And maybe today, if we ask nicely, we might get a tractor from, from Neil to grow even more stuff on our, uh, on our lush green pastures. And, and, you know, that's again, just increased, um, you know, uh, um, productivity, increased profitability, you know, means that of course that land's going to be worth a lot more. And it doesn't matter whether that land, whether we're talking about, um, you know, farmlands, um, or you know, because the same thing happens in residential and commercial real estate. It's all about the locational value of the land, you know, what is most desirable. Uh, and as soon as I saw your work, Neil, it really dawned on me like the productive nature of the tractor and what it's done to agriculture from, from a productive point of view. It, it is just, you know, it's just mind boggling and it's, and it explains a lot of the of the drive of, you know, why agricultural land has increased so much in value um, you know, from where it was a hundred or 200 years ago, as you said, you know, what, you know, 150 or 200 years ago, well, sorry, you said a hundred, about a hundred years ago, you had three people, um, a farm would feed, you know, three people. Whereas, you know, now, you know, it's what 170 or, or, or so for the average farm. I mean, it's, it, it the, the, the productivity gains are, are, are just huge. And, and the John Deere story of, of innovation is, it's just, it's just so fascinating, I think, that throughout its entire history from the from the plow, you know, to, as we said, the um, um, the way in which uh, the John Deere 
manufactured the plows to the marketing centers, um, all the way through to the tractor and, and the technology that sits in in the current, um, you know, the, the current state of the art farm equipment, GPS, soil um, sampling, etc. I mean, it's just it's just a story of 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 innovation, and and that's what you know this this podcast is all about. Um, and I find it amazing too within the story of John Deere about how. You know he's such a visionary, isn't he? He he creates employment opportunities. Um, you know, and that of course, you know, again driven from the tractor and the productivity increases the the skilled work that we undertake and the implications that has on society is is just uh, enormous. As well as the increase of food abundance and our ability to move that food. Um, you know, when we think about the infrastructure in the story, you know, we we get better roads, bigger silos, you know, huge ports now that uh, facilitate the the movement of grains and, and other crops, as well as the automatization of um, you know flour mills and and the like. Um, we've talked on and on about the technological advancement. This is just an amazing story, and even when you think about the government's role. Um, in this story, you know, it's the government licenses that that stand behind the patents um, that protect, um, you know, the, the intellectual um, advancements or intellectual property that that has been created, um, as well as, of course, the the value of the land, you know, via government title that um, uh, that it manifests into, and and all this stuff is just, you know, sold on credit. It's it it's it's our five drivers you know technology population infrastructure government and credit it's it's all the way through the story and i just find it you know so amazing and, and that whole point of the strategic thinking of john deere with to the placement of their manufacturing plants on those transportation crossroads again it, it I could, don't think I could have written the story any better if I was, you know, looking to to make up a story. It, it's quite phenomenal, isn't it, Neil? It's uh, I find it just just absolutely fascinating. It's it's incredible to to first of all for for me to be part of something that's 184 years in the making. Mm. It's it's that's an incredibly long amount amount of time, and, and I think when you when you approach something from the perspective that you're going to be here. To, to actually see it come to fruition and to, to experience the outcomes. It's a different perspective than if you're just working towards the next quarter. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, it's, we don't always think in those terms. Um, but I have, I have the luxury of, of thinking about 184 years of history mm. and, and thinking in those terms. And I think that's pretty, it's a pretty spectacular um, view. It's such an important story, and you know, I, I thank you for sharing it with us. Um, but tell us, you've got a book coming out, Neil, that is an absolute ripper, and I would definitely encourage people to to look it up and and, and grab a copy. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about this? The book's called Tractor Wars: John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. Uh, it it comes out in January of twenty twenty two. And it very much um, is the origin story of, of the farm tractor from the perspective of those three companies, those three manufacturers. It's, it's battle for, for the farm. It's battle against the horse, um, competing against entrepreneurs and fraudsters with the automobile, with, um, uh, you know, within the context of World War One and, and the Ag Depression of the early 1920s. Um, so really, it, it is trying to draw the curtain back on 
at the end of the day, how did the farm tractor come to be? Uh, why did it come to be? And, and why do we know these companies um, and the people behind these companies? I must say, I've had a little bit of a sneak look at it. Thank you very much. And it is, I found it a terrific read and very, very interesting. Um, so can we pre-order or what? how do we get hold of a, a, a copy, Neil? You can pre-order online on, on Amazon, um, any online uh, retailers, my publisher, Ben Bella Books. Um, and you can go to my website, neildahlstrom.com to learn more. Beautiful. Where is this, um, is that the best place to get hold of you on your website, Neil? It is. Yep. You, there's a, a contact form there. Send me a note. Um, let me know if you have questions or, or thoughts or uh, just something on your mind about John Deere that you want to ask about. There's some really interesting stuff there. It's a, it's a big topic, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there listening um, that have got a bit of a, an affinity or a story um, with the, uh, the green and yellow tractor. Um, it's, it is amazing how far it's permeated. I mean, I'm, as you said, the other side of the world sitting here in, in Adelaide and yet there's a, a John Deere retailer. I'm in the middle of a, you know, a, a populous, you know, million plus, uh, person city. And, um, it's about, I think it's about 31 kilometers from, from where I sit. There's a, a John Deere outlet selling all sorts of, um, farm machinery. So it's amazing how, you know, it, how big the company is and, um, you know, how far it has actually permeated. So look, Neil, thank you very much once again. I've really uh, appreciated and, and, and enjoyed the conversation. Um, and I would agree, you know, certainly, you know, encourage people to, uh, to, to look you up at your website. I'll put your contact details, of course, in the show notes. Um, if you want to catch up with us, then stop by at pafo.com.au. Pafo, of course, is the acronym for Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. Or you can look at us up on social media with our handle PAFOPOD. So P-A-F-O-P-O-D. We are, of course, on Facebook, Insta, and now on Twitter. I've really enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you have as well. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a rating or review. And, of course, tell all your friends about it. I've been your host and you've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. And until next time, Neil, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, history and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Calvin Flack has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production. 